Chapter 4 of The Psychology of Alcoholism by George Barton Cuton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Intellect, not including memory. We wake up for examination in this chapter. The subject of the intellect of the alcoholic with the exception of the memory, the treatment of which we have just finished. Included in this will be the distinctively thinking processes. Conception, judgment, and reasoning, and the imagination. The latter will be first taken up on account of its close relation to memory, and because it entails simpler elements on which the thinking powers depend, and with which we deal in the latter part of the chapter. Some of the intellectual factors of the mind are among the highest developed characteristics, especially when associated with the moral nature. Their degeneration means the degradation of the victim. The control of the emotions, imagination, and lower psychic factors is usually assigned to the will, but it is well to remember that this control must be under the direction of the judgment. For example, that will acts accordingly to and in harmony with the laws of the judgment. What we judge to be the right or expedient or profitable course of action, that we will to do according to the ideal which we have judged to be best for us. Our conduct, then, should be the result of our mature judgment as expressed by the way in which we will. If we are unable to judge correctly, if we cannot hold the proposition in suspension until we have light on it from all sides and decide on the reasonable side, then our conduct must inevitably suffer, both from the moral and rational standpoints. This condition we find to be that of the alcoholic, and it is with the intellectual phase of his condition, the imaginative and rational decline and decay, that we have to deal in this chapter. Imagination. The imaginative faculties are early affected, and their impairment forms one of the peculiar and constant symptoms through the whole progress of the disease. Imagination does not fail in all particulars, but the higher processes are most affected, while the injury to the lower ones varies, and at times their action may even be augmented. When alcohol is first taken on account of the increased circulation in the brain, which follows, the imagination is usually more active, and some of the wittiest remarks and brightest speeches have followed the first one or two glasses. It is noticeable, however, that the heightened imagery and freedom of utterance are attended with lack of control and imperfect coordination. Not unusually, remarks are made in the after-dinner speech which are of so low a character that if they had come into the mind when the speaker was possessed of normal judgment, they would never have been uttered. It is further to be noticed that what the seeker considers so brilliant a flow of imagery may be insipid and coarse. The diversion from normal not being in the exalted imagination, but in the defect in judgment. Some old hunters cannot begin their tales, some village speech makers are dumb, and even some of the orators of bygone days cannot respond without the accustomed dram. It is said that Theodore Hook had to be primed by alcohol before versification was fluent, and Sheridan in his latter days could not make a speech on the floor of the house until after cerebral circulation had been encouraged by whiskey. This is the primary effect of alcohol, to heighten the imagination. As the subject drinks more and more, the dose must be increased to have any effect, and finally with large doses the imagination does not reach its normal activity. In the meantime, the quality of the images becomes lower and lower until the mutterings are incoherent, vulgar, or senseless. In some forms of insanity of which alcohol is the cause, the imagination is very active. 
Especially is this true of delirium tremens, but it is also plain that the imagery is of a low and morbid character. It is the higher aspect of imagination which is destroyed, and that which remains might be called physiological rather than psychological, if such a distinction can be made. The psychophysical mechanism may send into consciousness an elaborate chain of representative images showing very little development of intelligence. We see this very clearly illustrated in the mental life of children, savages, and even the lower animals. This may also be true with the alcoholic, but in the latter case, the lack of connection between the different images is distinctive and at times almost unique. With a few extraordinary exceptions, no examples of the higher use of the imagination are found among common alcoholics. That is, no inventors, artists, poets, or seers, although many real geniuses are known to be dipsomaniacs. The dependence of the imagination upon the other faculties of mind is apparent. The physical basis of the imagination is probably the same as that of perception. The neural process in the former is only a milder degree of the same process which took place when the idea or thing now imagined was first perceived. The renewed feeling makes use of the same parts and in the same manner as the original feeling, the difference being in the intensity and the quality of the feeling rather than in the cerebral locality used. The constructive imagination requires a mind richly stored with material permanently fixed and easily recalled. This necessitates keen perception and deep impression. In the preceding chapter, the statement was made that the alcoholic could not perceive well, so imagination would suffer on account of this. In its lowest forms, imagination is much like memory with low recognitive energy, and hence the laws governing memory would in a great measure apply to the imagination. It is because of this very close relationship and the plenary treatment already given to memory that the discussion of the imagination requires so little space. Association of ideas is the keynote of both. To have a good imagination requires a mind also endowed with the power of readily reproducing the material supplied by perception, and then the free flow of association of ideas. Memory must be the basis of all imagination, and with memory impaired, as in the case of the alcoholic, it would inevitably have a serious effect upon the imagination. Will cannot create new images. It can only select some which have spontaneously presented themselves and inhibit the useless ones. By fixing attention on the selected images and thereby intensifying them, we may use them as stimuli for other similar ones which association may present. The genius is the man who has the power of bringing forth similar associations to an extreme degree. For example, the genius can usually fix his attention on one thing for a long time, and frequently there is only one subject on which he can fix his attention. On the other hand, the lack of inhibition from any cause results in increasing the rapidity of image-making. One can see this illustrated in any form of emotional excitement, the images being more numerous but void of selection. Here we find the alcoholic with will virtually gone, and judgment valueless, unable to fix attention on any particular image except that of drink, and not able to select the best image if he could attend to it. The corresponding process of inhibition of the undesirable images is equally difficult and the exaltation of the lower and uncontrollable emotions in most alcoholics lessens at times any vestige of inhibitory power which might be left. Imagination has been divided into two kinds according to the content, viz. reproductive and productive or creative. 
In reproductive imagination similar ideas are brought to consciousness free from the original connections of time and place, and elaborated by experience according to the mental development of the individual experiencing them. This depends largely on the memory and fails with it, so the alcoholic is not really strong. The productive is the highest form of imagination. It not only augments the reproductive, but it consciously relates the factors and assists their conformity to certain ideals. This requires and is a mark of superior intelligence, and therefore only its lowest forms are seen in the alcoholic. He has vivid dreams which may be creative as well as reproductive, and this is also noticed in the insane wanderings. In neither of these cases is there noticed any construction according to a plan, or any apparent end toward which it is working. These images are chaotic in the extreme. The specialty in this particular, however, is the wonderful fabric he is able to weave about his circumstances and personality, by which he impresses the unwary with his great need for alcohol. His lies are frequently marvelous as works of fiction, and very often are successful in procuring for him the coveted drink. Equally ingenious are the excuses which he gives for his present condition, but on account of his lack of judgment, they are as frequently ludicrous and childlike. He may become very suspicious, and in addition to misinterpreting the actions of his family and friends, may construct a series of incidents which to him seem probable, with no other ground for them than a diseased imagination, and then believe them. The images appear to have more of a touch of reality and become more firmly incorporated into the life of the alcoholic than in a normal person until he is unable at times to distinguish between the actual facts and the result of the activity of his imagination. His present condition is the best proof of his lack of normal imaginative ability. If he could picture the consequences of his acts, if he could imagine his condition in a few years, or even appreciate his present condition, a great incentive to sobriety would be present. In these particulars, he seems to be powerless. In imagination, especially in productive imagination, there is a simultaneous re-excitation of different central structures which have not before cooperated in this way. To allow of this new combination, the brain must have its normal plasticity, of which the alcoholic has been robbed by the more or less hardening process which is carried on under the influence of alcohol in which it is bathed. For the building up of new and previously unused cells and paths for the continued action of the centers which have been used in perception and for the free and uninterrupted activity of the brain as a whole, also necessary to imagination in its highest and best way, a blood supply of both normal quantity and quality must be present. If we refer to the alcoholic's condition as presented in the chapter on physiology, we readily see that the conditions are not fulfilled. In addition to this lack of plasticity and the poor blood supply, we have also to consider the loss of proper function due to the pathological growth and the consequent crowding of the cells. Thinking. The higher intellectual faculties grouped under this one word, thinking, suffer severely in alcoholism, because, more largely perhaps than any other mental process, they need the cooperation of healthy mental activity as a whole and this in turn is dependent upon a healthy, normally active brain. In acquiring accurate knowledge and in forming correct judgments, consciousness must be unclouded, and the mind should be keenly alive to every detail. On account of the composite character of knowledge, 
it is necessary for each part to be accurately and carefully obtained. The alcoholic might be described as a man in a state of chronic weak-mindedness. The mental degeneration runs all through a career of alcoholism and ends, if not cut off by premature death, in a loss of thought concentration in the less severe cases, and in insanity in the more severe. The beginning of decline may first be seen in indecision of character. This indecision is exhibited at first in the more important matters, but latter is shown concerning some things of little or no moment, until the alcoholic does not know how to decide about anything, and the decision which he may make is of value for a moment only. A minute later it may be reversed. For a time he attends well to duties of a routine and habitual nature, the duties which require little real thought. Any work of a new character requiring initiative is difficult or impossible for him, except that a vestige of his old spontaneity may be recalled by the fleeting excitation of renewed doses of alcohol. If he does accomplish it, he does it in a circuitous manner, taking twice the time ordinarily required and expending much unnecessary energy. He cannot make his head save his heels. After a new piece of work is undertaken, the original plan may be forgotten, for he is easily diverted from his purpose. If every point is carefully explained and he does not forget, he may carry out the plan given to him and finish the work better than as though he undertook to plan it himself. On this account he easily becomes the tool of others, and in complicated crimes laid at his door, he is often innocent, because he is not intellectually able to plan and bring them to a successful culmination. He is the instrument someone back of him is furnishing the mental power. The course of his ideas is sluggish and they become clogged, refusing to operate when they are needed, and their former continuity and force is lacking. Comprehensiveness of grasping ideas is lost, and a difficulty in seizing the relation of one idea to another is experienced. The mind is incapable of long-continued effort and concentration of any subject submitted to it. The mental weakness of the alcoholic is very clearly seen in the judgments which he makes, especially concerning himself. His friends recognize that his condition is serious, but he does not see that he is any different from what he was ten years ago and thinks that his friends are unnecessarily interfering with his private affairs. He does not notice that his relations to his family have changed, does not recognize that he is ill-treating them, and if they remonstrate with him he thinks that someone or something has turned them against him. He judges himself to be a good citizen, considering his ability superior to that of the ordinary man. The writer remembers witnessing a very amusing scene of this character. An intellectual gentleman, a superior businessman, who was lame, was transacting business with some strangers when an alcoholic joined the company. Owing to his inebriated condition, the alcoholic did not understand the business, but thought that the strangers were trying to take advantage of the gentleman because of his being lame and tried to take the matter out of the gentleman's hands and himself transacted, considering himself the more capable. He believes himself to be much more brilliant than he is, and will frequently laugh at his own jokes when his friends will not be able to discern any joke at all. He is unable to recognize his degradation, which in his eyes is turned into exaltation, and in all things he grossly overestimates his worth. Without the power of judging, he performs acts which to him may seem normal, but to his friends are ridiculous or blameworthy. Kerwell says, He is born headlong on his career of chronic alcoholism, either blind to the dangers which are before him, or, if he sees them at all, beholds them only in a confused, cloudy, 
indefinable mist which makes no impression on his mind and conveys no sense of peril to him. He can neither comprehend to the full nor discriminate accurately. The pains which might warn him are deadened by alcohol. The diseased and poisoned condition of his organs is unnoticed, and he is really unconscious of the destruction which alcohol has wrought on his body. His judgment regarding moral values and acts is affected to an equal or greater extent. He is unable to distinguish between right and wrong so clearly and definitely as when his brain was free from the effects of alcohol, and in most advanced cases right comes to be simply the fulfillment of his craving for alcohol, and all other things must give way to that. He is unable at times to make the distinction between truth and falsehood, and he lives in a world of false impressions. The real to him may be a flight of the diseased imagination or the result of paramnesia. He becomes confused regarding actual events, except those very clearly and definitely fixed in memory. Violence is often committed quite unintentionally by the alcoholic, because he is not able to judge how hard he is striking, and what he intended for a gentle tap may be a stunning blow. In having a book bound, the writer had an experience which illustrates this. The binder apologized for the workmanship, because the gold lettering on the cover had been impressed too deeply. He explained that the man who had performed this piece of work was formerly a splendid workman, but was now an alcoholic, and he was apparently not able to judge the amount of pressure he was putting on the press. The work was either too deeply or not deeply enough impressed, and usually uneven. As he is not able to judge the strength of the blow, he is equally unable to judge the occasion when a blow is appropriate. He cannot see how unfit he is for social intercourse and when he is most unfit, he is so deceived that he wishes to appear before men. The conventionalities which go so far to make up gentlemanly conduct, he neglects without noticing the fact. He tells his secrets concerning friends, family, and self without recognizing that he is doing anything out of place, and vulgar actions may seem exceedingly bright and witty because the sense of propriety regarding the personal conduct becomes obtuse. The higher, nobler mental activities are destroyed without his recognizing the loss. However great the offense to guests or host, he never seems conscious of it, and the lack of intelligence on his part is also unnoticed. In vivo veritas does not mean that the alcoholic is always truthful, but that the family secrets and business matters, which a well-balanced judgment would counsel to be hidden from the world, are betrayed during the period when alcohol injures the judgment. The sanguineness of the alcoholic is proverbial. Everything with him is pointing to success, and he is cocksure of every statement. In the clouded mental atmosphere through which he views things, when everything assumes a hazy, contorted appearance, a desire in any direction on his part makes it right, and the result of his imagination becomes truth. He loses himself. He fails to judge time. He cannot strike the balance between probabilities presented to him, and he cannot judge his action to fit the proper time. One thing is clear, namely that the highest possible perfection of the nervous system is only possible with strict total abstinence. It is equally clear that high virile thinking and keen unfaltering judgment cannot be the product of a mind which is dependent on an alcoholized brain. In the discussion of the alcoholic question, one observer has proposed a theory which seems to be hardly consistent with the facts correctly interpreted. He holds that man is distinguished from the other animals by an appetite for brain stimulants. The largest brain, and consequently the most highly intellectual and civilized race is now living, 
consume greater quantities and varieties of brain stimulants, especially alcoholic drinks, than do contemporary semi-civilized or barbarian peoples. He recalls the further fact that a greater disparity of excess characterized the ancestors of such brainy races as far back as we have any knowledge of them. An immediate and total disuse of brain stimulants, including alcoholic drinks, is not desirable in consideration of the highest human interests. Declare the drunkard to be just what he is now recognized to be by the intelligent, a man of unsound mind who by reason of infirmity is incapable of performing the full function of citizenship unaided, and who also by reason of inability control his own actions, periodically or continuously is dangerous to society and himself. Inhibition, not prohibition, is the point and keynote of his argument, and he evidently thinks that the highest in mental development can only come through the use of alcohol and other narcotics. The facts which he presents may be true and undoubtedly have a large element of truth, but the conclusion does not follow. The relation of alcohol to the development of the race is accidental, not casual, and probably the truth of the matter might be better expressed if we say that these nations are greater intellectually notwithstanding their use of alcohol rather than because of it. The words of Dr. Baer seem to express the scientific view today rather better than the theory which has just been stated. Undisturbed reflection and quiet comparison, critical regard and deliberate judgment, impartial observation of facts and the weighing of the relationships. Such are the mental processes to which mankind owes the entire treasure of positive knowledge, including the progress of natural science, technique, and industry. Such processes are certainly not promoted by alcohol. A few years ago, the German authorities at Bonn made an investigation upon alcoholism among pupils in primary schools. Of 237 pupils, 7 to 8 years of age, there was not one who had not drunk wine, beer, or whiskey, and 23% of these children were given their glass of whiskey every day by their parents that they might become strong. As a result of these investigations, it was proved that children most accustomed to alcohol showed the least intelligence, and those children who had their morning glass of whiskey but found no savor in milk showed great inattention during the morning hour. The experiments of Kraepelin have been very interesting and instructive in showing the effects which alcohol has upon the intellectual powers. He found that the time required for simple reaction and also that required for choice reaction was shortened after small doses of alcohol had been taken. But in harmony with other investigations, he found that large doses of alcohol cause a retardation of the action of all forms of reaction time as well as other mental activities. The result of some experiments on the intellect have been summarized so succinctly that we can do no better than to quote the following. Those processes which involve the reception and mental working up of conceptual material, like the addition of figures, are affected in a detrimental manner from the very first by alcohol. In other words, alcohol, according to Kraepelin, exerts a stimulating action on the organ of the mind when it is occupied with sensory intellectual material but has a depressant action when the mind is engaged on purely receptive or constructive operations. Larger quantities of alcohol, say the equivalent of a bottle of ordinary wine, depress every type of psychical energy from the first. It is not without interest in this connection to cite the testimony of a mastermind, Hemholtz, who declared that the smallest quantity of alcohol sufficed to dispel from his mind every idea 
of the creative order when he was trying to give form and being to some dimly seen conception. Smith had studied the action of alcohol, when administered for a number of weeks in small doses, in quantities varying from 40 to 80 grams per diem, in its influence on the simpler psychical processes. The investigator found that there was a decrease in the ability to add figures, amounting to 12 days to about 20%, while the power to memorize was diminished by about 70%. The action of alcohol as affecting reaction times and association was also studied. Among the associations, there was a decrease in the number of those classified by Wundt as inner associations and an increase in the number of outer and sensorially disconnected associations. Inner associations are interpreted as a higher form of intellectual operation than the two other classes named. The damaging action of the alcohol was sometimes apparent on the very first day, sometimes only on the second day of the alcohol period. No experiments were made until from 8 to 12 hours after the last administration of alcohol, and the influence of the acute or immediate action of alcohol, as illustrated in Kraepelin's experiments, does not enter into Smith's results. The conclusions are drawn that one half to one bottle of wine, or two to four glasses of beer a day, not only counteract the beneficial effects of practice in any given occupation, but also depress every form of intellectual activity, that every man who, according to his own notions, is only a moderate drinker, places himself by his indulgence on a lower intellectual level and opposes the full and complete utilization of his intellectual powers. In addition to the experiments conducted by Kraepelin and Smith, which are undoubtedly the most important, we should also take notice of the results of other experiments, some made over a third of a century ago. In 1870, Exner experimented regarding the duration of mental reaction during the influence of 150 grams of alcohol. The dose was undoubtedly excessive, and he found that it retarded mental action. He also discovered and put before the public for the first time the fact that the subject was deceived regarding the result, for he considered that the reaction was quicker. In 1878, Diddle and Wittgen continued the experiments of Exner. They showed that if the dose was not too large, not over 45 grams, it produced some acceleration of the mental processes. When 60 grams were taken, the duration was longer, and 90 grams very quickly caused diminution of mental work. With some experiments on animals in 1883, Danio confirmed these results. He injected into the venous system of a dog a solution of 30 to 45 percent alcohol, the amount being four to six grams of the solution per kilogram of the animal's weight. He found after the injection that the region of the cerebral cortex, which is concerned with the movements of the dog's limbs, became inexcitable to any current of electricity. Warren used only small doses, administering by the mouth 12 to 15 grams of alcohol in a much diluted solution. In three cases, the alcohol resulted in a pronounced acceleration of mental processes. In one case, it produced a long retardation. Fear added to Smith's results the observation that the renewal of indulgence in alcohol after a period of abstinence showed a depression in mental work on the first day. Destry has shown that the paralysis of the motor centers is manifested in weaker doses than Kraepelin used. It is generally admitted that the primary and immediate effect of alcohol in small doses is that of a quickening and heightening of mental processes. We know 
that for a little while reaction time is shortened, and there is always a feeling of exuberance after alcohol has been taken. Kraepelin made a personal observation in an intellectual experiment which confirms that of Exner already cited. During this period of acceleration immediately after taking a dose of alcohol, he judged that it was much easier to learn by memory twelve places of figures than under normal conditions. When he came to examine the records, he found that instead of having accomplished his task more easily and quickly, it had, as a matter of fact, been accomplished more slowly. Two other investigators in the same laboratory confirmed this result by means of similar experiments on themselves. This is a striking example of the deceptive effects produced by alcohol and the lack of ability to judge when under the influence of a small dose. The higher intellectual centers concerned with judgment are benumbed. We have further testimony along the same line, Bruton says. A celebrated author once told me that if he wrote under the influence of a small quantity of alcohol, he seemed to himself to write very well. But when he came to examine what he had written the next day, after the effect of alcohol had passed off, he found that it would not stand criticism. We have also the following from Professor G. Bung. Intoxicating drinks never make a man brilliant. The prevailing notion that they do is based on self-delusion, is only a symptom of incipient paralysis. In proportion as self-criticism is diminished, self-approbation rises. What has been termed Dutch courage is the result of defective judgment. It has been observed among some soldiers who were naturally cowardly that after they had partaken of alcoholic beverages they seemed to be brave. But the fact was, they were not in a condition to appreciate the danger and hence they eagerly charged the enemy. The higher faculties were inhibited, and where they might reasonably have feared, they saw no cause for halting. The effect of alcohol on the thinking powers, according to the observation and experiment, is disastrous. And finally, the alcoholic is ruled entirely by the lower mental faculties, and he becomes a machine. We turn now to consider the reason for this. It is difficult to distinguish what are called the higher intellectual faculties from the lower, that is, we cannot draw a sharp line of distinction between thinking and reasoning on one side and perception, imagination, and memory on the other. The latter are always included in the former, but thinking and reasoning are not so restricted as perception and memory, and with them we are able to accomplish much more. The higher constructive, imaginative processes are very closely identified with thinking and reasoning and may even ascend to loftier heights, being in turn freer and less restricted than the thinking powers. The distinguishing difference between thinking and the higher imagination is that while both are representative, thinking is abstract, imagination is pictorial. Now, with this very close relation existing between thinking and these other intellectual factors, it is evident that the higher processes of the intellect must fail if the lower ones do. To be enabled to reason, the mind must be stored with facts of observation or instruction. This presupposes perfect qualities of sensation and perception, which unfortunately the alcoholic does not possess. His store of facts is limited and confined mostly to events of years ago, on which he dwells and which he inserts at every opportunity. He usually has one humorous story, only one, but all his friends are well acquainted with it. One tale of wonderful prowess is also very familiar. His reasoning is circuitous and faulty, usually running in one rut or circle. His deficient memory is a great drawback, because whatever his experience, he is unable to reproduce it. 
and thus his store of observations and of facts which he has heard is not augmented and thus his store of observation and of facts which he has heard is not augmented the imagination so closely related to some parts and so useful to the thinking processes in all its departments being obstructed the thought processes must suffer thereby and especially the higher reasoning powers the dependence of thinking upon the will is manifested in two ways first and most inclusive through what is known as voluntary attention and second in the inhibition of extraneous elements of consciousness purposeful thinking is difficult entailing as it does long continued effort in one direction the holding of one thought in the mind for a time in order that others might be compared with it analyzing and combining endeavoring to force or invite contributing thoughts and using the whole mental power in the most fatiguing manner children and lower races of men are incapable of this except in the most rudimentary way the alcoholic is in similar state his faculties are so stunted and unfitted for hard work of this kind that he is only able to reason in the most puerile fashion he cannot hold himself to definite object for any length of time on account of his lack of willpower and consequently on account of the loss of ability for concentrated effort the physical basis of the higher intellectual powers is necessarily complex we can posit no organ of the higher faculties or no specific localization in primary intellection a somewhat relatively prolonged and complex excitement of associated cerebral centers is required the physiological conditions are fulfilled only when two or more cerebral processes belonging to different areas of the brain are united by spreading over the connecting association tracks and so forming a large unity of combined cerebral excitements besides this it requires the psychophysical conditions necessary to prolong voluntary attention and on account of the nature of the higher intellectual faculties using as they do the other mental powers in all their complexity there are also required the conditions necessary for the activity of all the different mental factors if any particular region could be named as a specific physical basis of the higher intellectual qualities it would be the central tracts of the frontal region of the cortex but as we have just said the whole brain is in use probably more than in any other mental activity in addition to this accompanying the exercise of the higher intellectual powers there is frequently an innervation of certain muscles particularly the eye head and articulatory apparatus causing muscular tension so often the concomitant of voluntary attention the pathological changes in the brain of the alcoholic are sufficient to prevent the operations of the higher intellectual faculties the destruction of the nerve cells which are constantly degenerating hinders the direct and uninterrupted flow of impulses which form the physical basis of memory and association of ideas in imagination and the lack of a sufficient quantity of blood of the proper quality is detrimental to the spontaneity which judgment and reasoning require there cannot be that facility of construction in the mind of the alcoholic so necessary to the mental synthesis which judgment presupposes the nervous correlation of which would be the explosive state of healthy nerve cells in the cerebral excitement caused by a fresh indulgence of alcohol the ideas run wild all inhibitory influences are removed and all manner of thoughts are thrown together without any apparent relation or association 
This we call a state of drunkenness. But with the alcoholic, the continued use of alcohol seems to paralyze the intellectual powers so that there is a lack of mental activity as a whole, and especially of the higher sort. The mental inefficiency is of inevitable effect of the brain changes, and in chronic cases in which the lesions have been permanent, it may not appear until after years of abstinence. Where indulgences are continued, the breakdown is sure and more rapid, the higher centers being the first attacked and destroyed, the lower ones having control when freed from the inhibitory action of the higher ones. The latest and most highly developed cells first feel the paralyzing toxic effect according to the laws of degeneration, and as the reason and judgment depend upon the cells in this category, we must expect this portion of the mind to feel the effects very early. The reason, being the highest form, would naturally show the earliest decline, for in reason the mind is exerted to make an inference from two judgments already present, a new judgment being the result. Judgment proper follows the next in the order of decline. The judgment is the essential and simple quality uniting things already in consciousness, but of itself adding nothing new. The decline of this synthetic power is the great misfortune of the alcoholic, as far as the intellect is concerned, and this is in reality where we notice the injury most. The stimulus to judgment, which may be nothing more at times than an observed change in our surroundings, is lacking on account of the dull perceptive powers, and on every side we find the foundation for the intellect decaying, so that the loftier part of the structure is soon a complete wreck. We may wonder why some of the intellectual powers act more readily immediately after the indulgence in a small amount of alcohol. The conclusion from Professor Kraepelin's experiments was that alcohol made easy the cortical liberation of movements, the transformation of ideas and memories of movements into deeds, but no real mental power is given. The feeling of power, ability, and accelerated mental action is due to the facility for liberation of movements from the cortical areas. The injurious intellectual effects of alcohol last 10 hours, and the continued use of alcohol from day to day at the rate of 60 grams each day gradually decreases mental ability. The consumption of 80 grams of alcohol per day causes the ability for work to deteriorate from fifth day onwards. If the use of alcohol is then discontinued, the intellectual power begins to increase towards its normal condition, but by reverting to its use, the intellectual power begins to decrease more rapidly than before. In this chapter, we notice the same disastrous results of alcoholic indulgence upon the remainder of the intellect, as in the case of the memory. The primary effect upon the imagination appears to be that of stimulation, but the alcoholic is devoid of control. The latter effects make the imagination valueless for any of its higher uses. The drunkard is weak-minded and without initiative. All judgment, especially that of moral character, is more or less invalid, and on account of this he is unfitted for social intercourse. Experiments show that small doses of alcohol at first quicken and heighten mental processes, but the latter effect is retarding and debasing. The inebriate is unable to judge concerning his own faculties, and his reasoning centers around a defense of his indulgence. As an intellectual wreck, he is an object of pity. End of chapter 4